It's great to be thinking about hope, thinking about the future and uh, what the future holds. I wonder how you view the future. Uh, the course Hope Explored, it's a new course that's just come out, suggests four ways that you might look at the future, your future, the future of the world, the future of mankind. Uh, and we could symbolize them with four pictures, and I'm hoping that the first one will come up on the screen. There we go. Simple pictures for you. First one is this, um, which is to look at the future and think everything is going to get better. Mankind is on the up. We'll defeat this virus. Technology is always progressing. Things will just get better and better. Is that the way you view the world? Or there's a second way, which is the opposite. You think everything's going to get worse. Um, that uh, this virus, well, it seems to be coming back with a vengeance, but more than that, mankind is heading for extinction, and anyway, the universe is going to implode. You're the kind of person who it's not great to have at parties, um, but there we are. Lots of us maybe fit into that category of thinking things are just going to get worse. Then you've got the third group of people, which is people who think, well, it's sort of cyclical. Everything just keeps coming back and back. There have been pandemics before, we'll have them again, and everything just sort of goes round and round in circles. And then you've got the last group, uh, which is the people who think, well, it's just chaos. Um, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, we're not going up, we're not going down, it's not round and round, it's just, you know, it's just random. Okay, so which of those might you be? Let's have the next slide, please. Um, which of those might you be? I wonder which, you, which category you fall into. Well, we're going to be thinking about Isaiah chapter 11, which gives us real hope. It gives us Christian hope, points us to the hope of the Bible, the hope of Jesus. And what we find is that the Christian hope is none of those. The Christian hope is different from all of them. Now, we're looking at Isaiah 11. Now, Isaiah, the book of Isaiah was prophesied written down about 750, 700, 750 BC. And earlier in the book of Isaiah, God has said to His people that they are in a terrible state. They are in an awful state. If you'd like, if you'd like just to turn back, would you, if you've got a Bible open, turn back to Isaiah chapter 1, or if you've got it on a device, scroll back. It's interesting, scroll back, isn't it? That either means you're very technological or you're in some dark ages in the past and you've brought your scrolls. Anyway, um, if you go back to Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 21, it gives us a little glimpse of, uh, there of what God is saying about His people. Isaiah 1.21 says, See how the faithful city has become a prostitute. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Sorry, I've got the NIV 2011. I don't know which version you've got in front of you. But you see there what God is saying about His people, about Israel, about Jerusalem, the city. That she's unfaithful, unfaithful to God, that is and that things have just gone horribly wrong. There's no justice. There's murder. These are God's people, God's city, Jerusalem. It's terrible. And therefore, what you find in the opening chapters of Isaiah is God is saying, therefore, judgment is going to come on His people, on Israel, on uh, Jerusalem. 
the Assyrians, this mighty power, are going to come and take God's people into exile. And God is saying, this is judgment on you because you've been faithless. And therefore, you probably think at this point, Isaiah, that sounds like arrow down, doesn't it? Everything is just going to get worse and worse. Judgment is going to hit. It's going to be terrible. But what you find in Isaiah, these opening chapters, is there are glimpses of real hope. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, it's sort of the, you get this image of Israel completely restored and a mountain which is glorious and wonderful. And you've got this weird dilemma in the beginning of Isaiah that it's lots of judgment, but also wonderful hope. And you think, how will Jerusalem, how will Israel ever get to being that wonderful city, that wonderful nation? How will it ever get there? And what you find in these opening chapters is all hope comes down to an individual who's going to come. And you started to hear about this individual last week in Isaiah chapter 9. This person who was going to come, this child who is to be born, and all hope rests on that person coming. And that's what we find in Isaiah 11 as well. So please turn or scroll back to uh, Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah 11 verse 1, here's this individual. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Now, what's this imagery that we've got going on here? It is of a tree, isn't it? A stump, tree stump, a tree that's been lopped down, chopped down. And the stump is the stump of Jesse. Who's Jesse? Jesse is King David's father. So if you know about the history of Israel, King David was the great king of Israel. His father was Jesse. So to say that there's a stump of Jesse means that the kingship has sort of come to an end. It's sort of been chopped down. Uh, Jesse has been, been chopped down. And that's what's going to happen as the people go into exile and it all looks like it's going horribly wrong. But this says there will be a shoot that will come up. This person will come in the line of Jesse, in the line of David, he will come. And therefore, he will be a king. And that's our first point. Uh, if you go on, thank you. Look to the king, verses 1 to 3, we see this king who's going to come, this, this, uh, uh, this uh, one that's going to come up from the stump of Jesse, this shoot. See this king. Verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. He will have God's Spirit on him. And what will be the result? Well, you see various characteristics. Verse 2, there are three pairs of characteristics. We can't go into each one in detail, but just have a look at them. Verse 2, the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of might. What kind of king is this? This is the king that Israel desperately needed. Very unlike the, king they've, the kings and the rulers and leaders that they've actually got at the moment. This is the king they need and the king we want as well. Because the sum of those characteristics is that this is a king who will know, who will see to the heart of matters, who knows exactly what is going on and knows exactly the right course of action to take and with might is able to carry it out. Now, so often, actually, these characteristics are, are what is lacking in our leaders. 
our political leaders. We often complain about our political leaders because they don't exhibit these qualities. I mean, it was very evident, wasn't it, at the start of the pandemic, and maybe you feel it still is, that it felt like they didn't have wisdom. They didn't have understanding. They didn't know about the virus and how bad it could be. They didn't know what steps to take, and they didn't have the power to make it happen. It felt like they just lacked all of these things, wisdom and understanding and counsel and might. And you see, with the new variant coming uh, and with it increasing, you sort of feel, well, it still feels like that, doesn't it? And sometimes we blame our leaders, and sometimes they are to blame, but sometimes it's actually just because they don't have these things. But this king will. This king will have wisdom and understanding and counsel and might. He'll have those things. And furthermore, you will have the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. Knowledge of the Lord there being not just knowing about the Lord, but knowing the Lord, knowing, being in relationship with the Lord and fearing the Lord, and more than that, delighting in the fear of the Lord. Oh, the leaders of Israel weren't doing that at the time. They didn't fear the Lord. There was idolatry going on. They didn't fear the Lord, but this king will and will delight in those who do fear the Lord. Now, who is this king? Well, it won't surprise you to learn. This king is Jesus. He is the one on whom the Spirit rests. At his baptism, the Spirit came down, descended and rested on him. And when he spoke at the, uh, at the synagogue and said, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, he's saying, I know, I am this king. Now, this is helpful for us in many ways, but one of the things it does is it says, if we want real hope, we need to look to this king. So often when we make our decisions about, well, do we think everything's going up, everything's going down, everything's cyclical or everything's random, it's because we just look to the world. You wake up in the morning, don't you, and maybe you look on your phone and you just see the latest news headline, and you make your decision, you think, well, there, there you go, it's all getting worse. But this says, look to the king before you look to the world. Look to the king, Jesus. But how does that help us? Well, we come to our second point. See his rule. See the rule of this king described by Isaiah, prophesied about by Isaiah. Verse 3 to 5. Uh, just start with the second sentence in verse 3. Have a look at it, would you? He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash round his waist. So what is this rule? Again, it's a perfect rule, isn't it? He won't judge by what he sees or what he hears. So often our judgments are based on what we see and what we hear, and therefore we just make mistakes, don't we? This is why I'm not keen on buying things on eBay. We tried this a couple of weeks ago again. My son wanted to buy a bag, for, you know, a golf club bag. Wanted to get one, see it on eBay, thought, yeah, this is the one, this will be great. It arrives, and it's nowhere near as good as you thought it was going to be. So disappointed. The metal's all rusty. It's all dusty and dirty. You look back on the picture and you go, it, did, it didn't look like that. 
And then you zoom in on the picture and you go, no, it did look like that. But this is it. We judge by appearances, don't we? And maybe for you, actually, that has caused much bigger problems. And sometimes we look back and we go, if only I'd known. This king doesn't have that problem. He doesn't judge by appearances just by what he sees or hears. He judges with righteousness, with God's perfect standards. Now, we might well want to ask at this point, sorry, I got ahead of myself. He judges perfectly, and notice, will you, he judges the needy. Now, you might think, that says that in verse 4, doesn't it? But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. Now, the way we use the word judge, that feels mean, doesn't it? You sort of think, the needy, haven't they got enough to worry about other than being judged as well? So that's not the way the word's being used, is it? It's being used as they get justice. That's what this king will bring. He'll bring justice for the needy and uh, decisions for the poor of the earth. Now, notice how this is mushrooming out. We're not just now talking about just Israel. We're talking about the earth. He's judging for the world now in this prophecy and bringing justice and good decisions for the poor and the needy. Now, at this point, you might be asking, well, when are we going to see this? If this is Jesus, this king, he came 2,000 years ago, when do we see this rule? Because he's had 2,000 years since he came, and we've still got the poor of the earth and the needy. Where is this rule? Well, we need to understand that um, Old Testament prophecies are often like a mountain. Um, I've got a high-tech graphic for you. It goes, it's a bit like my previous high-tech graphics. You'll love it. Um, this is a mountain... This is a mountain, Um, and sometimes if you look at a mountain, you'll see that you've got a mountain in front of you, but actually if you were to look at it from the side, you would see there's more than one mountain in the range. And that's what we need to understand about Old Testament prophecy. As the prophet uh, speaks, it sort of all gets mashed into one. And so it looks like one prophecy, one sort of fulfillment, but actually as you go through time, you find there's more than one fulfillment. And that's what we see in this prophecy in Isaiah. That yes, Jesus came. He is the one on whom the Spirit rests. And he came 2,000 years ago. But what we find is that there are multiple fulfillments. So I think if we go on the next slide, next high-tech graphic, there you go. You've actually got two mountain peaks in this thing. As you go through time, you see actually Jesus comes twice, not just once. And we are, next slide, I think, here. You are here. Okay, you're between the mountains. That is Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. And so his kingdom, his rule, has it come? Well, in his first coming, you saw the king, Jesus. And what's the first thing he says at the beginning in Mark's gospel? He says, uh, the kingdom of God is near. Repent, believe the good news. It's near because the king is there. And so he does call people to repent, to bow before him, to bow before his kingship. And he calls upon his people to live out his priorities on this earth, to love the poor. But do we see his rule and reign completely now? No, that is yet to come. 
That is in the second coming. So this, some of this, you go, yeah, we sort of see this in Jesus' first coming. And see, it's sort of in the church, but actually in fulfillment, in completeness, we'll see it at his second coming. So see his rule and look forward to it, to its completion. Now we come to the last point. We'll come back to that high-tech diagram in a bit. Last point. Long for his world. This is the last bit, verses 6 to 9. And this is where this prophecy just goes into overdrive. And you think, this, this is amazing. What kind of a world is this? Have a look at it. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, the lion will eat straw like the ox, the infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. What a weird but wonderfully amazing world that is portraying for us, isn't it? Animals that used to be enemies with one another now getting along. Now, we in this country, we're quite protected, aren't we? Because lots of animals, they don't try and kill us. But, I mean, there are plenty of other countries in the world where you've got animals that do try and kill you or, you know, kill each other a lot. Um, Maybe you grew up in that kind of country. Maybe you visited that kind of country. I once visited a snake park in Tanzania. And you're used in this country, we're used to, you go to the snake bit in the zoo and the snakes are just... You know, they're doing nothing. They're just there. You're not supposed to tap the glass, but you do it anyway. And they still, nothing. This snake park in Tanzania, first go in, and uh, there's an enclosure, glass enclosure, with an enormous python in there. And we went right up to the glass, me and my friends. uh, And the python, it was just asleep. We thought, oh, yeah, it's like England. Um, And so we're there looking at it. And all of a sudden, it leaps at the glass at one of my friends. Not just once, several times trying to get to her. And that was terrifying. And as we went around the snake park, all the snakes were alive. And as you go around, you're thinking, yeah, but some of these live in this country. And I was terrified for the rest of the visit to Tanzania, and it was six months. You come back to this country, you go, oh, thank you, Lord. We don't have those kind of animals. They want, to, they want to eat you. Apparently, Australia is the worst. There you go. Uh, for animals that want to kill you. And yet, in this creation that the Jesus will make, there will be none of that. Lions and lambs together. Bears, calves, people, snakes. Just sort of no conflict. No death, no killing. But would you notice how this comes about? Verse 9. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, please, would you notice, just have a look at that verse. That is really important, isn't it? Notice, would you, how the two halves of the verse link. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for because the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Why is there peace there? Why is there no conflict? Why is there no injustice in this future world? Because people know the Lord. Know being in relationship with God. Not just knowing about God, but in relationship with God. You want a world of peace and justice and goodness, people need to know the Lord. Why do we live in a world where there isn't peace? Why there's injustice? Because we don't know the Lord. That's what the Bible says, isn't it? Because we don't know the Lord. That's why the world is the way it is. 
And this is a future prospect. Can we get a uh, next slide where I think we get my wonderful diagram again? That this uh, world with no conflict is a future world that Jesus will make at his second coming. It is a world where everyone there will know the Lord. And this tells, helps us also to see why is it that Jesus has to come twice? Well, he comes twice. First time, well, not to reign on a throne. Not to reign on a throne. Oh, the people thought maybe he might. When he rode into Jerusalem, do you remember, the people were shouting and cheering, Hosanna to the son of David, this one in Jesse's line. And they rode in and they presumably thought he would go to the palace and rule and reign and this would be it. This would be this one mountain, but it's not one mountain. He didn't come to rule and reign in that way. He came to die. If we move on. Oh, no, go back. Don't worry about it. Thank you. Okay, he came to die. Now, why die? Why was he coming to die? What does he achieve? Actually, now you can move on. Sorry. There you go. What did he achieve when he died? This is so important, isn't it? For Christ also suffered. This is in 1 Peter. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God, to bring you to know God, to be in relationship with Him. He came first time to die in our place so that we could not come to know God. And that is the only way to be ready for when Jesus comes back and brings in this world where all will know the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so, thank you. Now you can go on to that next slide. So, Jesus' first coming, he came not to reign on a throne, but to die on a cross so that we could come to know God. That's the only way we can be ready for, next slide, his second coming, where he will come and rule and reign, and we, there will be this world in this way. And therefore, the thing for us to do now is to respond to his first coming, to come to know the Lord now, and to tell others of Jesus and what is the hope that we have? It is not that mankind will just get better and better. We don't think that's going to happen. But nor is it that mankind will just get worse and worse. It is not that things will just go round and round as they always have. It is not that things are just chaotic. It is rather that we look to these mountain peaks. We look back to Jesus' first coming. And we glorify God and we thank God for the fact that he came so that we could become uh, we could come into relationship with God. And we look forward to the second coming. We don't just look into the valley, which is where we are now, where we still see injustice and, uh, and sickness. But we look forward to that second coming where we will come to rule and reign in this kind of way. I wonder if you've responded to that, to this wonderful hope. Don't just look to the world around you. Look to King Jesus. And as we take communion, we're celebrating that he came the first time to die and will come again to rule and reign. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you for Jesus, this King who came 2,000 years ago in fulfillment of this prophecy, but who will come again to rule and reign and bring in this wonderful world of peace and of justice. Father, help us to fix our eyes on him where we're tempted just to look at the world. Father, help us to lift our eyes to Jesus.